changing the aesthetic or even the athletic element of yourself is just a way to show you that you can control who you are and what's happening to you. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need help, you know, whether it might be medication or, um, you know, counseling or whatever it might be with your, whatever you're dealing with in your life. But the more you can prove to yourself that you're the one in control and it's not your situation and it's not God and it's not, you know, karma, it's not all that shit on the outside, it's you that really controls the situation then you start to take back more elements of your life and go, I've got this already, I've got that under control, I'm going to reach out and take the next part and the next part, and it builds. That is trainer and CEO of TransformationCoach.com and OriginalBootCamp.com, Chief Brabon. And this is episode 246 of the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. And welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 246 of the show with Chief Brabon. You can find him on Instagram. He's at C-H-I-E-F-B-R-A-B-O-N. Find him and his wife, Emily Brabon Hames, at transformationcoach.com. More about Chief in just a moment. If you're new to the show, welcome. Hi, my name's Osher. I'm a TV host from Australia. Currently, I'm working on... Um, what am I doing? I'm working on a show called The Bachelorette at the moment, which we do The Bachelor, which is one boy, lots of girls, and we do The Bachelorette, which is one girl, lots of boys. But you're about to see the one with one boy, lots of girls. Uh, if you were in Australia, we launch on the 15th of August, which will be a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, so we're, but I, I'm currently working on the other one at the moment. And um, what else do I do? Oh, I, I, I write a book. I wrote a book. It's out on the 20th of August. You can buy it in my, uh, there's a link in my Instagram profile. And I'm also writing a show. There's a show based on the book because the book started as a storytelling show. So we decided to make a storytelling show out of the book. And you can buy tickets to that, osha.is slash live. It's on the 30th of August in Sydney. I would love to see you there. Come and say hi. Um, I'll be hanging around. I'll be signing stuff. I'll be taking photos. I'll be having a chat and talking to you. Hearing your story, I love that. Um, but when I'm not doing any of those things, I'm uh, I'm either cooking, hanging out with my family on my bicycle, or um, making this very podcast every single Monday for the last 245 Mondays in a row. This is what I've been doing, and I love to do it. There's so many other episodes to check out. If you go and like, uh, go you know, check a few out and just go and listen. It'll be great. Uh, this podcast, what is it? It's a conversation designed to help you Make today a little better than yesterday. That's pretty much it, specifically designed to do that. In fact, sometimes this conversation will be with a name that you know, and you'll go, oh, I know that person. I'll download that. But sometimes this conversation will be the person that you don't know. But I'm going to guarantee you this. No matter who I speak to each week, you are going to hear something that you need to hear. You'll hear something in the next, I think it's nearly two hours. It's one. It's a biggie. You're going to hear something that you need to hear today. And something that'll help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. And that is what this show is all about. And today, it's all about the nuts and bolts, the action, the steps of making today better than yesterday. Uh, And helping make today better than yesterday, um, there's lots of people 
on the Facebook group who are helping each other do that. So much support there. We're nearly at a thousand people already. It's extraordinary. Osha.is slash FB group if you want to pop over there. There's so much love and support for everybody on their own journey. And it's it's just great how people are, you know, moving forward together there. It's a great little community of people who listen to this show and get together uh, online and um, stay in touch. And it's it's pretty, pretty great. To check in with you this week, well, my friends, it has been a big one. If you've been listening for a little while, you know that I've been talking more and more about exercising and particularly about the power of exercising and keeping my head straight. Well, I can finally tell you why. I've always said that I would never take my shirt off on camera. I would never take my shirt off in a photo unless for the first time I did that was for the cover of Men's Health Australia. I'm a man of my word. This week, you will see me with my shirt off on the cover of Men's Health Australia. And I'm the very first plant-based person to do so in this country. The photos are on my Facebook. The photos are on my Instagram. It was an incredible transformation. Over nine, over 10 weeks, I lost nine kilos of fat. I put on two and a half kilos of lean muscle and I did it all by eating nothing but plants and just simply training every single day until I was a flat pancake on the gym floor. That was it. I started the transformation. The guys at Chief and M and Men's Health came to me late last year. I was still on meds at the time. And they came to me with the idea of doing this transformation. And when I came off the meds in December, it and you know I've spoken about this a lot, it meant that I needed to put something in the place of where those meds were. Now, bear in mind, I came off and I stay off my meds under strict supervision from my doctor. All right, I didn't just decide one day I'm going to not take them anymore. All right, it was a long process of winning myself down, dosage down, dosage down, month, week, month, week, all the way down to where we actually went to zero. All right, but I stay in touch with my psychiatrist like every every four to six weeks. I'm always in there talking with Adam, just making sure that everything's cool and that we're still okay to keep this drug free experiment going on. Um, but when I did come off meds, I needed something to put in the place of where the meds were, something that would help do the job that they were doing uh, because they had been very, very helpful and incredibly powerful in me healing, actually. But it got to the point where I got so much better that the side effects of the medication now became the problem rather than the reason that I needed to take the meds be the problem. When that happens, you don't care about the side effects is all you want is the problem to go away. But once the problem started to go away then the side effects started to become more prominent. And that's, you know, where you kind of face that tipping point with your doctor when you decide benefits versus side effects. What do you want to do? So I needed something that would help me regulate my emotions, help me regulate my emotional responses. And there's a bunch of things that I do to make sure that happens. But resistance training, picking up heavy things and putting them back down again, Resistance training has been a very large part of that. I read about this in great length in my book, which is only two weeks away, but for a little under three months, I trained every single day with Chief and M, his wife, Emily Brabon hames I trained with the two of them. Every day, I pushed my body until it released those feel-good hormones, the four horsemen, as I like to call them, the endorphins, the dopamine, the serotonin, and the norepinephrine. Personally, I found that when I worked out, those chemicals swirled around my head. They made me more calm and maybe more controlled. And most of all, they made me more emotionally resilient. Now, this isn't for everyone. 
This is only what worked for me. I'm just trying to share with you what works for me. And like I said, like any good mental health patient, I kept checking in with my psychiatrist as the months passed. I still got the green light and our drug-free experiment carried on. It's now been seven months since I've stopped taking meds. I'm still under doctor's supervision, mainly because there's a massive difference between not taking meds and not needing to take meds. And to keep it that way, resistance training is something that I do almost every single day. I spend time on on my bicycle almost every single day. I take care about what I eat and I put effort and care into what I eat almost every single day. Sure, look, it does take time. However, it is an investment not only in my health, but more importantly, in the quality of my relationships at home and the quality of my relationships at work. Look, the mental health benefits, I can't even describe. They're incredible. The physical health benefits are off the chart. Um, My doctor can't believe my blood pressure for a 44-year-old man. Um, And let's be honest, the aesthetic benefits aren't so bad. (laughs) But obviously, I did not do it alone. I didn't know the first thing about making the body shift and change and move and, and, you know, alter its composition. I knew how to train for a marathon. I knew how to eat when training for a marathon. I knew how to feed myself when riding bikes up mountains. But I didn't know how to do this. So, like anything that I don't know how to do, I go find someone that knows how to do it. And thankfully, these people, in this case, they actually found me. And I was a very, very willing and eager student, probably sometimes too eager to these guys. Having two incredible coaches show me how to do this, that was what made the big difference. That and going until the point where I was flat on the gym floor (laughs) because it's, it's in that when you push yourself that hard, that's where the change happens. So it's a, it's a big, big special today and next week. So two weeks in a row, we're going to talk about this um, because I've got these two great trainers that I worked with and I want to talk to you about them. I want to share you their stories, share their stories with you, I should say, um, to share with you these people that helped me achieve a, a dream come true, a men's health cover and a vegan one at that. <laughs> and we're going to start with Chief. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Chief Brabon is the fitness director at Men's Health Australia. He's the CEO of TransformationCoach.com, 
and the CEO of Original Bootcamp. If you want to find out more about the transformation that I went through, you'll find it at transformationcoach.com. It was with Chief Brabon and his wife, Emily Brabon hames that I worked out every day for 10 weeks to achieve my cover shot of Men's Health Australia. And when you spend an hour a day with someone every day, you get to know them pretty well. And I got to know that both Chief and his wife, Emily, have remarkable stories to tell. We'll hear Em's story next week. It's compelling and it's a transformation in itself. Uh, this week, though, we're going to hear from Chief. Chief and M are the team behind the biggest selling Men's Health Australia covers of the last few years. Larry Emder, actor James Stewart, and yes, indeed, Guy Sebastian. In fact, while I was doing my transformation, that's when I did my podcast with Guy. We had to cut about 20 minutes of it out because I couldn't reveal to you what I was doing. Um, but in that conversation, Guy we and I, we talked about the mental health aspects and the, the um, I guess, how it changed the way he works and, in fact, how the way he lives. So if you want more on those concepts, go back and listen to that uh, Guy episode if you have a chance. It's a fantastic listen. He's a great guy. Chief is a man who is driven by a, just a, a relentless desire for knowledge. He has travelled the world to train with and learn from the best in the industry and then comes back to Australia and passes that knowledge on to the people that he works with, be it in the parks and beaches every morning on his original boot camp workouts or during his one-on-one -on -one transformation coaching like he and I worked on. Chief's story is one that does take some turns that you might not expect. A former military man, he had a significant injury in his 20s, which has left him with chronic pain that he still lives with every single day. How he overcame that pain and transformed his own life, that's what this conversation is all about. We don't pull any punches. And we do talk about suicide in this conversation. So if you or anyone you know needs support, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can find Chief on Instagram where he's always posting workouts and the like. Uh, Chief Brabon, uh, Chief, B-R-A-B-O-N on Instagram. And more about the program that I went on, uh, transformationcoach.com is the website. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chief Brabon. How are you? Hey, I'm good, mate. How are you doing? <laughs> thanks, thanks for coming. <laughs> no problem. How long have you been called chief? Ah, geez, about 25 years. Actually, more than that now. God, I'm getting old. Uh, since I was like 17, 18. Who first called you chief? My clients that I had back in those days because um, I was chief instructor of the program. So with the program we taught back then with boot camp as it is now, uh, all the instructors have ranks based on what their position is in, in the organisation, and mine was chief instructor, so everyone just called me chief. And how old were you? Uh, 17 when I very first started. <laughs> 17. Mm. And you've been called that ever since? Yeah. Wow. A lot of people actually for many, many years had no idea what my name was. Like actually one of our clients who's trained with us for about 16 years, she said for the first 10 she had no idea what my real name was. <laughs> I have I have learned your real name. Your wife slipped it out accidentally one day. Uh, I've never used it. Uh, but, I'm, look, I'm grateful. I'm bloody grateful you're here, man. You know, you've each got such an incredible story to tell, both you and Em, and it's such a great story. Both of you each have such a great story. It's worth letting those stories you know, sit on, on their own. But well, I'd love to talk about how you got to someone who does what you do and essentially motivates people for a living. Um because, you know, what, certainly what I found doing the work with you, doing transformation work that I do with you, um, 
but nothing would have happened had I not picked the thing up. You know, you could have stood there and yelled at me all you like, but unless I picked something up, nothing will change in my body. So while you're extraordinarily smart and an incredible wealth of information around physiology and how bodies work and stuff like that, I think what you and M do best is your motivational ability is the thing that sets you apart. That's what certainly what I what I found. So I'd love to get us to that that point. But I think it's important to to paint the picture of how, you know, you've your your ups and downs on the way to that. Um you are not originally from Sydney, are you? No, originally from Melbourne. Which part? I grew up in Doncaster. Um, which is in the uh, eastern suburbs. Uh, lived in one house my entire upbringing, um, which is quite interesting. Apparently, it's quite rare nowadays. Yeah. So lived there literally you know, uh, all the way through my schooling. I went to went to school in Q uh, to Trinity Grammar School. Near Q. In Q. Near Q. In Q. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a bit slow to the average punter, so yeah. You went to school in in Q K E W. That's correct. What? So what was I? Isn't there a race course in Doncaster? Uh, no. So Doncaster Race Course, I think, used to be the one that's now called Randwick Race Course. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Doncaster Road is in Randwick. Oh, right next that's to where I'm thinking of. Yeah. We're driving that way all the time. So what was what was life like in in Q in Doncaster? Um, pretty easy going. You know, I, I had a very blessed upbringing. Um, when I think about it, my father was a, a teacher. My mother was a nurse. Um, I have one sibling, an older sister, um, incredibly close family, close extended family. Uh, my father's family were all from North Queensland. Um, interesting bunch. Love them very much. How but, far north? Uh, usually most of them are still around Air, Home Hill, um, up towards Townsville, uh, just all over the place. Gets like pretty, anywhere north of Bundaberg starts to get pretty weird. I, I try to explain it to my American friends. It's like the further south you go in the yeah, US, without a it's like the further north you go in Australia. Absolutely. Um, you know, my, my, some of my family are crocodile catchers, you know. Um, I remember them rocking up to my school as a kid, um, you know, driving out to the school oval on their Harleys, you know, with beards down to their bellies and, you know, but they're beautiful people. They're just wonderful, you know, Aussie blokes. So. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting part of the world if you've never been up there. And I think a lot of people do that. You know, they holiday all over the world rather than, you know, you can take a five-hour, seven-hour flight and be in Bali or you can take a five-hour flight and be in North Queensland. You know, right. And it's pretty it's pretty interesting up there. It is. And I remember back in the day, every Christmas we'd go up there and we'd drive up from Melbourne. And my dad would do it in two days. Yeah. In the old Ford Falcon with no air conditioning in the heat of summer, driving all the way to North Queensland every year. Far out. That is a that is a long road. Where did you stop overnight? <laughs> Remember, we I think we used to stop just north of Sydney. Wow. And then go again. I can't remember now. It was quite a long time ago. We sort of stopped, you know, my lady is at school, but uh, yeah. That is that is a heck of a drive. Like for for folks from overseas to try and comprehend that you're going to drive for two straight days. And still be in Australia. That's right. And not even touch the edges. No, not even close. Not <laughs> even. Well, a good way to think about it is, and people used to always laugh about this, is that uh, the distance from Brisbane to where my family live is actually the same distance from Sydney to Brisbane. So it's like literally not even just it's it, North Queensland should not be the same state. It's actually like a whole completely yeah. different state. Different culture. Different, different culture. Different everything. So your father 
was a school teacher, but he he was involved in sport in in a way, wasn't he? He was an incredibly gifted uh, sportsman. He'd uh, played elite level cricket, rugby, tennis, uh, athletics, table tennis of all things. Uh, just one of those guys that could could do anything when it came to sport. Uh, but in those days, particularly coming from North Queensland, there was no money in sport. So he made the decision to become a teacher. He ended up getting a position at a school in Melbourne. So he, he headed to Melbourne. And uh, that was, you know, at the time that he met my mum. So he stayed in Melbourne for the rest of his life and became a coach. So he, he coached, you know, he coached a number of Australian cricketers. Cricket was his real passion. So um I know he had uh, Jimmy Higgs and all of those guys. He was an amazing spin bowler. Um, and I even remember waking up one night, in the middle of the night, thinking, those are really weird voices coming from the lounge room. And I walked down to the lounge room and seeing the lounge room were uh, Clive Lloyd and Viv Richards. And I'm like going, I don't quite understand what's going on. But my, my cousin who grew up with us when his father passed away, he played cricket for Queensland, should have played for Australia, but he was in a car accident. And um, so there was this strong connection with my father and sport all those years. So you want you wandered out in the living room, and there is there is essentially the Kendrick Lamar and Kanye West of West Indies cricket, amazing like superstars. And I hated cricket, to be honest, like because I was terrible at it. But I hated cricket. But I, even I was like, you know, amazed at who they were because they were, and particularly in those days, legends, absolute legends. Why were they hanging out with your dad? Uh, they'd come to see my cousin. And uh, my cousin was in town playing. He was playing for Queensland at the time. And I think he was meeting them at, at our place. And uh, yeah, it was really interesting because I sort of had a couple of words to them because you know, they were on about cricket and everything. But I still remember just walking in and seeing. It was such a weird sort of idea to walk into your own lounge room and, and see these absolute legends. So it was very cool. You ever been to the West Indies? No. Mate, it's like. The royal royalty doesn't come close to describing how these people are revered. Oh, these men, sure. royalty doesn't close to describe how how these men are revered. There, uh, it's beyond any kind of footballing, you know, yep. adulation that we have in our culture. Mm. The West Indian there's a tiny little, like a, a, a like if you three grains of sand at a map, that's what the islands became. And then uh, under cricket, they just became this. Just world dominating. They were. Force. I mean, for so long, and I think that was what everyone loved about the West Indians was, was that you know they were such this tiny country that most people had no idea where it was. Like they wouldn't be able to find it on a map, and they just produced you know this incredible, not only just great players individually, but an amazing team that mm. just dominated cricket for such a period. Changed the game. Mm. They, uh, literally changed how the game was played. And you get those great stories of Kerry Packer getting upset at the West Indian fast bowlers who had run-ups from the boundary and the walk back to the boundary is like, I'm going to run ad breaks. I'm going to run ad breaks. This takes a minute. Mm -hmm. I can run an ad break here. Uh, So you weren't great at cricket but you were great at at sport. Well, I was terrible at sport growing up. I was absolutely horrendous at sport. So um, my mother wasn't a sports person. She was a a water skier but the old performing water skiers used to like, you know, pile up on each other's shoulders and do the Moomba carnivals. She did that when she was young and then she never really did sport after that. My sister was um, an Australian-level um, gym- gymnast and a you know, champion at gymnastics and then I was crap at everything. I tried everything. My dad was one of those great guys who, you know, he had no problem with me trying any sport and then had no problem with me real- realising that I just wasn't suited to that sport. So... 
I was really terrible at literally every sport. I, you know, I was good at martial arts and I got into karate like when I was young. But then we just happened to be on holidays once. And I think maybe I was about 12 years old or something like that. And they had a couple of bikes there, but none that were short enough for me because I, I didn't hit my growth spurt till I was quite a bit later. So my dad and my sister got on these bikes and decided they'd go for a ride. And I thought, well, I'm going to jog along beside them and try and keep up. And so this went on and went on and went on. And apparently we sort of ended up going, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 kilometres. And my dad sort of said, look, you know, you can run a ride. I'm like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, he goes, well, cross country's coming up next month. Why don't you go on the cross country? So I went in it and had never trained for it, never, you know, knew how to, didn't know how to run properly. And I think I placed third the first year and thought, oh, it's all right. I'm not bad at this. And then from that year on, I never lost, like, the cross country or any of the track events at my school um, in my distances. And found that not only was I a good runner, obviously genetic, you know, um, you know, benefit to, to you know, being lean and, and slow twitch muscle fiber and all that sort of stuff, but I actually enjoyed it, like really loved it. So did track all summer, did cross country all winter and faked my name on numerous applications to do marathons because back in those days you had to be 18 to do a marathon. So, you know, I was doing marathons from the age of about 16. What was your first marathon? First one was the De Costello Marathon that was run by our neighbouring school, um, Xavier College, and Deeks went there. Um, so I remember one of my, pr- my proudest moments was actually winning, like, against all the adults and getting the medal from Deeks. Wow. Like, it was mind-blowing. So that sort of made me think, oh, you yeah, know, there's, there's something to this. And the other person who actually had a big effect on me was we're driving through the, the country somewhere in northern uh, Victoria at one stage and... Going along, and my mum goes, that fell up there running. And I'm going, stop the car, stop the car. And I jumped out, and it was Cliff Young. <laughs> so I jogged along with Cliff Young for about five or six kilometres on the road. And was he in a training run or was he running a race? No, he was no, in a training run. He was in a training run. Um, just quickly say, Cliff Young famously won the uh, Sydney to Melbourne, Melbourne to Sydney. Westfield Ultra Marathon. It was seven hundred and thirty. Sydney Melbourne. It was Sydney Melbourne. So seven hundred and thirty kilometers or something. Yep. Gigantic. Mm. And um, famously, just run because he had a he had a shuffle and he just wouldn't sleep and just eat nothing but potatoes. It was the perfect um, tortoise and the hare story. Yeah, absolutely. Because all these runners, the Greek guy, well, yeah. yeah, amazing. Yeah, so they'd go out and they they'd run all day and then sleep at night, but Cliff just didn't stop. I mean, he ended up winning purely because he just. Didn't stop. Did you have a chat? Did you jog alongside and have a yeah, chat? Yeah, he was wonderful. He was a really lovely bloke and um, just typical, you know, farmer, you know, like the rest of my family in, in North Queen, oh, sorry, um, Northern uh, Victoria at the time. And so, yeah, so he was lovely. So that sort of got me interested in the idea of doing ultras and all that sort of stuff as well. Wow. What did you like about marathon running? <sighs> I think I liked sort of that trying to see how long I could redline for. So I used to have a training regime where – I'd run to athletics training and it would be, I don't know, maybe about 10 kilometres. And my goal was to keep my heart rate over 190 the entire way there. Like that was, the, that was back in the day we had no problem, you know, I understanding of what heart rate training was or anything like that. But I just remember that uh, I had this really old, looked like a bloody fridge on your arm, heart rate monitor, and I'd just basically try to stay over 190 all the way to training. And, I mean, obviously it was a benefit. You know, it, it, I, 
and I loved chasing the guys who were fitter than me and older than me and things like that. And we had a couple of guys at the school that were Australian champions and things like that. And so they were a couple of years older than me. And I just loved it. I just loved it. You know, do, A, you love anything that you're good at. Like it's, you know, just natural. Like if you, you find something that you actually excel at, you tend to enjoy it more. But I just found that the longer the distance, A, the better I was at it, but also just got into a bit of a zone. Yeah. Yeah. What happens in your brain when you're in that longer distance? Sing a lot of songs. Um, back in those days, wrote a lot of songs in my head. Um, I don't know. I just sort of – I find I'm a pretty creative sort of person. So I, I just come up with ideas and concepts and just depending on what I was doing in my life at the time. But I just – if I wasn't racing, I'd zone out. When I'm racing, I'm the exact opposite. I'm like – I run with blinkers on and I get lost in races purely because I run so hard I'm so – focused on running as hard and as fast as I can that I miss turns and markers and so yeah so I've got a bit of a reputation for getting lost on courses it's interesting interesting you say that that um because I know exactly what you're talking about when I used to run there was something that kicked in around about 45 50 minutes I had to wait that long for it to come but when it did like that's it I was suddenly thinking all the most creative interesting things that happened all came then. Yeah. Like your brain just goes, oh, we're here now. It's kind of unlocks this secret mm. vault of different ways of thinking. But it'd be nice to figure out how to get that without the 10 kilometres first. But yeah. That's just what it is, yeah. you know. It's true. You know, and, and I think people find it in different ways and, you know, I, you know like M, M's like that. She she just really finds a pace that she holds all the way through a race and yeah. reels people in. But she just sings along to herself and does her thing and, you know, she just gets into a great little space. Who was the first? Do you remember the, the first time an adult treated you differently because of your athletic ability? Yes. So actually not in a very good way. Um, my father taught the school I went to. That's got to be tough. It was, but he was, it's funny, my, you know, he, he was also my hero, my dad, but um, he was very interesting as a teacher, like a great educator, 36 years at one school. And he never gave a detention. Wow. Didn't believe in it. Didn't believe in disciplining kids that way. He believed in understanding why they were doing what they were doing. So anyway, all the kids loved him. And it was a little bit weird. Like, you know, you get picked on a bit for being, you know, teacher's son stuff. But I remember, I think it was like my third or fourth year of cross country. And one of the teachers went to my dad and said, I'm going to bet against your son. So I've been training up this kid, you know, for eight months he's going to beat Jim. You know, this is going to happen. And so my dad was, like, pissed, like, you know, not, not happy about this attitude. And apparently this guy was making bets with other teachers. And um, I just remember, like, he, he really treated me quite differently in, in regards to got a bit of angst going with me. And it's like, like, didn't understand what the process was. But um, it was interesting, though, that as a whole I was treated a little bit differently at school. I was a terrible student like absolutely terrible student. Um, I found school very easy. I actually excelled at school, but just, I don't know, just wasn't interested. So because I was like the top runner and things, I'd get what they call a chit, like a, you know, a note that let me leave school when I wanted to leave school. So at lunchtime I could go for a run. So I used to run from Q to St Kilda and back, you know, just to go for a run. Or I didn't have to do PE, I could go for a run instead. So I used to milk the hell out of it all the time and, and do things like that. So I sort of got away with a lot at school, a lot more than I should have. Um, 
but you know, it was one of those things. I, I had a great school life and great mates and, you know, all those sorts of things, but probably wished I'd sat down and learned a bit more. <laughs> so what, what did that do for your options after school? What was your next move? So before I even finished, um, or sorry, I finished my year 12, but before I, I'd gotten my results, I decided to go into the army. Um, dad, my dad had served in the army for a short period um, and just, you know, he, my father was a great storyteller, so I used to love listening to about his experiences. And I knew I didn't want to go to university yet, um, no matter what happened with my, my scores and things, just because, I, I, like I said, I didn't really enjoy learning that way. So I signed up for the military. Um, no one believed me because I was a terror at school. So no one believed I'd ever go into the army for you know, a place full of discipline. Uh, my girlfriend didn't believe me, my best mate, my mum, my sister. Only my dad believed me. He goes, yep, you'll love it. You'll have an amazing time. So I ended up getting, I ended up getting into physio when I left school and, and – I know now I don't, I don't regret not doing it, but at the time I was thinking, oh, you know, at least it's something to come back to if I want to after, after my experience in the Army. So I went off and did that and, uh, yeah, a mixed experience. You know, it's like anything, any type of military service, there's ups and downs and experiences that, you know, uh, shape you, and I think they all do to some extent, the positives and the negatives, but I just found it wasn't for me. I wasn't like soldiering wasn't my thing. Um, but while I was there, luckily enough, I'd, I'd built a reputation on my fitness when I joined. And when I tried out for a few um, sort of specialist units and things like that, uh, people had taken notice of my ability. And so a lot of other guys came to me and said, look, can you train me as well? And I'd, I'd already been um, a coach. I started doing my coaching at, at school because we didn't have a, a actual cross-country coach. So school sent me off to do that when I was 16. So I started training a few of the boys on the base and all that sort of stuff. It was great. And then they were getting ripped and they were killing it on their um, their tryouts for different units and things. And then I get a phone call from uh, the wife of one of the soldiers saying, can we have a chat to you? I'm like, can we have a chat to you? Okay, this is going to be weird. So I've rolled up and it was a group of the wives and girlfriends of the guys I was training. And they were like, we love what you're doing. Our men look great. Like, we're really happy about that. But we want to look the same way. We want to get training. And in those days, so this is, you know, early 90s, there was no such thing as outdoor training really in Australia. Um, and where we work, I was based in Brisbane in the Army and there was... Around, yeah, Nogra. And around Nogra, there were no, you know, health clubs or anything no. like that in those days. The only real gyms were like literally um, for old hardcore boxing and yeah. bodybuilding, yeah. barbells. Yeah, and the girls went comfortable. Frightening machines that look and crush, you got know, crush injuries just waiting That's to happen. That's right. Yeah. Exactly right. So they said, look, can I train them? I said, yep, no problem. That'd be great. You know, I can do that. I can just do it after work, you know, three days a week. And when I started training them, I just started training them the same way I trained like their husbands. And a big part of the way I became a coach was utilizing the discipline and teamwork and things that I learned being in the military. So I just used that with them as well. And so that was literally the very first boot camp in Australia. It was um, unheard of to train civilians that way to be, you know, literally de you know, demanding and, and ordering them to do certain things and reprimanding if they don't do them the right way and that sort of thing. But it went well and I loved it. What kind of results were they getting? Good. Like I think surprisingly 
because of the intensity of the way we trained, I think it was really unusual in those days to have any sort of, of training, particularly for, for women in Australia at that stage, to do really intensive training. Um, it was a time where there's a little bit of aerobics going and things like that and circuit classes. But these girls were, you know, really training hard and, and doing the tough, you know, the tough stuff. So they were getting good results. The thing I started to learn was how to deal with people of differing fitness levels, um, which was interesting. And, you know, obviously training their husbands, they were all conditioned and strong and, and also very disciplined. Um, with some of these ladies, not so much. So you learn to adapt to suit the civilian market. And then... I decided to get out of the army. You know, I sort of got to the end of my service and said, look, I'm not going to re-sign. So I went back to Melbourne and started doing it full-time. Um, I was working, you know, managing health club as well, but I was doing the boot camps and found I had a lot of people coming from uh, AFL clubs during off-seasons and uh, the VFA back in those days and mixed with housewives. So, yeah, it was, you know, I found that I, I really enjoyed it. I had a real passion for it, so it sort of took me into the fitness industry. How long were you in the military, Ola? A uh, total of four years. For all in Australia? Yeah. Right, based in Brisbane for four based years. Brisbane, yeah. What was your job there? Uh, just an infantry soldier. I believe that's called a grunt. Yes, a grunt. <laughs> a grunt and proud of it, yeah. Can you give me an like, I we talked about this a lot as we, you know, obviously we worked out every day together for a couple of months. We talked about this quite a bit, but uh, we talked about the amount of, of PT that's involved in, in the military. Uh, now, you know, just only judging by Instagram, so it's kind of self-selecting, but it seems that general population are far more willing to do a high volume of training by themselves or, you know, every day. But then you've probably been the only people in the community doing that amount of physical work every day. And it was really different. So we kind of talk about the old school army versus the new school army and things like that. And, yeah, people sort of, you know, if, you, if you're not actually from the military, you sort of think, oh, what a bit of a joke. But back in the day, the, the level of fitness you required to do any job in the military was very, very high. So to pass basic training was a minimum of seven pull-ups. Uh, to run a 3.2K um, run, I can't remember what the time was, but it was, you know, it was pushing it. So the physical requirements just to be anything, you, to be a cook, to be, you know, a driver, anything, you had to pass that ability. Nowadays, it that is actually a higher level of requirement than infantry is. So back in those days, that was the minimum amount. Then when you went to infantry, it was a higher level again. So we did PT every morning, like five days a week, and then we had sport like two or three times a week. And then I had a, a highly competitive uh, platoon commander who wanted to hold every record on every obstacle course in the country. Um, I think we did in the end. Uh, so he used to do extra PT sessions with us, which was unheard of, you know, to have an officer join you in those days. So that was like, you know, the, almost all of our life was physical. Now, if you weren't doing PT, you were still out soldiering. So, you know, doing platoon assaults on hills and running and diving on the ground and obstacle courses and things. Now, like we'd see these guys, you know, in you know, the Army and the Navy come out to do PT and it's nowhere near as hard as what we're doing with our boot camp civilian recruits like not even close so it's just all changed i think it's i think i find it a little bit sad and I, I find it a bit of a concern because if i was going to war next to a man i'd want to know that he was in his absolute best you know shape mentally and physically um and i think that's a little bit lacking for for some of the guys now does it change the way you look at the world when you come out of the military having 
been through the conditioning and obviously I'm just kind of interested because a lot of the is also the physical training of getting you where you are, but also the mental training of like, look, if push comes to shove, you're going to need to pull this trigger and someone's going to die and it's going to be, that's your job. That's right. And, it, and it's, it's a weird concept to get your head around is that idea that, you know, you're, I think the hardest thing for me was the biggest reason why I left was um, taking lives was the problem for me. It wasn't, you know, the risk of losing my life. Um, it was just one of those things where I, I couldn't get my head around it in the big picture and, and to continue on in that sort of mode. But in those days, there were a lot of stuff that you, you went through. Like it was a lot of bastardization, like which they don't allow at all now. Um, where I remember I had in basic training twice I had a cigarette put out on me. Um, you know, you just get hammered with extra physical training every day. You know, the old joke of the officer and a gentleman, you know, where he's in doing push-ups in the, in the puddles and stuff like that, that is happened all the time where they just put more and more weight on top of your back while you basically drown in a puddle. Um, but it wasn't personal. It was hard to get my head around at the time. Like, it's horrendous, 17 years old, you know, first time away from home really. But as I went through more and more, I realised it was just a way of conditioning us and breaking us down and then and building us back up. So it was funny when I came back to civilian life and all my mates had just gone off to university or done a gap year in you know or two in um, the UK, completely different people. Like they couldn't quite get me and I just saw them as being exactly the same as they were when we were at school. Like nothing had changed. So it was a little bit hard at first to fit back in, but again, I think it gave me a, a leg up when it came to going into the workforce and, and building a career and things like that. Because you're just used to so much stimulus, I guess, every single day and a constant forward motion pursuit of a yep. goal. You know, you've, you would have obviously chased something down that could give you that. Well, it's one of those things where, you know, like some jobs, you know, you can go and you can sort of um, tread water, you know, and just get through the day you know we were always pushing ourselves learning to be better at what we were doing as i said you know a platoon commander who always wanted us to take on new challenges etc so i think i always had that mentality so whether it, when i got out and i went back to competitive sport i had it even when i went to, into my career and i was building my original boot camp programs and um managing health clubs and things or doing things uh that a lot of people my age weren't doing and i think it was purely because of you know, the, the background the army gave me didn't, so how did you go from like, – this is – I love this story. How did you go from being a guy managing a health club to uh, help, helping whittle down from thousands to, I don't know, 20 of television's uh, very famous and incredibly physical and f- frightening to look at gladiators television show? How did you come to work on that show? That was funny. So I by that stage I, I'd moved to Sydney and I was doing the boot camp thing up here and – um, again, boot camp had just not taken off in Australia at all by the time we sort of got started. And uh, Fitness First came to me and said, look, we want we want this program. You know, they had come out of the US and said, look, you know, we, we need to be doing this as well. So they took me on to, to build it. And suddenly it was, everyone was talking about it because everyone else was doing gentle exercise. Everyone else was doing yoga, Pilates. That was the direction of the industry. And here was this, you know, weird guy out on the beach, you know, yelling at people to do this and drag each other up and down the beach in the rain and all this sort of stuff. So I I built this reputation for the toughness of what we were doing, but my background was still in sports conditioning and strength conditioning, so there was always a science behind things. So I got approached by um, the producers of 
of the new version of Gladiators, and they sort of said, look, we're really concerned. We've got to come up with, as you said, um, I think it was eight Gladiators and 20-something competitors. And they said, but we think it's going to go crazy. I'm going, how crazy? And they said, we're talking maybe 20,000, 30,000 people trying out. I'm going, okay, it's crazy. And they said, but we need to get rid of, I can try to remember now, I think they said they wanted to get rid of 90% of them in the first hour. Mm. And I said, I can get rid of 95% of them in the first five minutes. And they just laughed and going, no, no, I'm serious. What do you mean? I said, it's just simple. Like there are just ways to do things. And again, it went all back to the things I went through in the military and and, um, tapping into that. So when they tried out, their very first thing they had to do was called the grunt test. So a grunt um, is an exercise based on a burpee. It's just a little slightly more technical version and something that can be done to cadence. So the very first test they had to do out in the basketball court as they walked into the room was do grunts to cadence. They had to be able to do a minimum of 50 to go to the next stage as a competitor. They had to do a minimum of 100 to go to the next stage as one of the gladiators. And we got rid of something like 96% of people in that first five minutes. So, so a grunt, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a burpee without the push-up. That's right. So hands on the ground, kick out to push-up position, kick back in, and then jump with your hands above your head. Yeah. So and, and it could be done quite quickly. Yeah. So And the cadence wasn't that fast. Um, it was interesting. So we, we had all of you know, our recruits um, from original boot camp uh, were out there as you know, sort of the judges and, and the marshalling. And so they'd walk around the room and they'd let people sort of try to get back on the cadence. So if they fell off the cadence, some people were just so uncoordinated they couldn't keep time. Mm. So I'm standing on stage, you know, calling the cadence all the way through and they just had to stay with it. And if they couldn't stay with it, they'd get an opportunity to try and get back on it. But if they couldn't get back on it, then they just could be asked to leave. And, it, you know, people were in tears because some people lined up for like, you know, nine, ten hours and they – didn't last two minutes. Mm. But what I found was apart from the physical side was the mental side. So one of the ones I loved was uh, big Derek Boyer, former strongest man in Australia. Probably I'll, I'd throw him up there with some of the biggest ones now. Um, and the, the producers looked at him and said, why the hell do you want him? I said, oh, really? This guy's going to make it. They go, no, 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 no. Why would you want him? I said, this is why, and I showed him the photo. The photo he put in with his application was him dragging a semi-trailer. I'm going, there's nothing that's going to scare the shit out of people as much as standing in front of him to go through an obstacle course or whatever it might be. So Derek got out there, and he struggled to get through the cadence, but he did not quit, like not once. And he was in a world of pain. And he was, you know, a typical strong man, a lot of body fat, you know, not, not sort of and built. massive. Oh, just enormous. What, 100 and, and something? Oh, 120-something, I'd say, at least. And, and big unit too, so tall. And the taller you are, obviously, the harder it is to get down to the ground and back up. So he was just one I, I had earmarked and, and he just really showed his worth. And then some of, some of the others were terrible. We had a guy tried out who was a cop. It was so juiced up. It was on so much gear. It was mm. out of control. His eyes were yellow and Ugh. and he couldn't do it. And M walked up to him and said, sorry, mate, you're, you're done. And, you know, he's, he's like sort of took a step back and she walked off to somebody else and then he kept going. Then another marshal came up and said, mate, you, you can't, you're not keeping up. You're doing one out of every four. 
he'd stop and he'd push this guy away. And then another mate of mine who I actually met on the tour when we were doing this, he was the head of security, um, little guy, well, I say little guy, you know, 5'10", um, just solid guy, walked up and said, there's two ways this is going to work. You either leave on your feet or you leave on your face. And this guy was massive. Like he was like huge roided bloke. He just took one look at Billy and went, okay, and walked out. <laughs> but it was, people just wouldn't give up. So we went through the process. We ended up with a great group of athletes. So I said to the, the producers, I'm going to choose athletes because I want my gladiators to destroy these competitors. Yeah. That was my thing. You can choose the one the personalities. You can come up with the names and all that stuff and, and give them the on-screen training, which was obviously a big part of it because uh, it's still entertainment. I said, but I want real athletes. I want them to be actually out there, you know, and, and be intimidating and mm. all those sorts of elements. So we had a good crew. They, you know, they were chosen, all that stuff, and it was a long process. And then they turned around and said, by the way, you've got six weeks to get them ready for TV. And I'm like... Jesus Christ. Okay, so what am I going to do here? I'm going to have to get their athletic ability up. They're going to have to learn all the skill sets. But we had to put them into Lycra on television, which is a horrendous thought for anybody. Um, and so the next big thing was to, to strip body fat off them, but we had to add lean muscle as well to keep that. Because I wanted to have that sort of um, – or gladiatorial sort of look to them, that that uh, warrior look, mm. and for the girls as well. And so we had to go away and, you know, Emily was working with me at the time and we thought, God, we're going to have to really nut this together. And so we went away and, and created a plan and in the end it ended up working fantastic. The guys were great. They looked amazing on TV, um, you know, shredded. You know, weird people like uh, um Anthony Kudafidis, you know, former AFL player who looked better than he ever played, you know, professionally. Um, we had uh, Hayley Bader, you know, an Ironman uh, competitor. I think she won more calling out of golds than anybody else. And, and again, she just looked like, you know, an amazing sort of warrior. So the show, you know, the show didn't last. It is what it is. That's what television is. But they were a great group to work with and a great project. You mentioned, you mentioned Emily. At what point did uh, you meet her? So I was working at Fitness First. So they'd come to me and say, look, you know, can you open up original boot camp? Open up boot camp for us. They obviously called it Fitness First Boot Camp. And at the time, all the trainers I worked with were all ex-military. So they were from everywhere, you know, Brazil, you know, Scotland, the UK, US, Australia, but all blokes and all ex-military guys. And then I get this, you know, application saying, oh, you know, I want to try out for a job. And I'm going, oh, well, we actually, I, I like the idea of having women on the course because we we're finding that some women were finding it really difficult to sort of, you know, open up to men, particularly you know, when you're training, there might be health issues that you want to make your instructor aware of, but you know, it's a little bit <clears throat> embarrassing at times. So I've uh, gone, okay, who's this girl? And I've asked around the office at head, head office and they go, oh, yes, yeah, she teaches over the road at Bondi. I said, okay. So I've wandered over there and I turn up to Spring Street Fitness first and I saw all these people lined up out the front. I'm like, oh, what's going on here? So I've walked up the stairs, past the line, all up to reception, and I've you know, said to the uh, the manager that was there, I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, they're all here lining up for Emily's class. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. I said, really? And they go, yeah, basically there's only so many seats in the class and if you're not in line, you're not going to get one of the seats. I said, cool, that's interesting. So 
I'm having a chat with the manager and the class has started and then I'm thinking, gee, she, she really rips into him. She's really pushing him. Then I actually go to the window and look in the classroom. She's not even using the microphone. Like she's that loud and that pumped up. So I thought, cool, okay, I'll get her to try out. And she tried out and she just, you know, did a great job. And so she's actually the most experienced civilian boot camp instructor, I think, in the world, like definitely in Australia, but I think the probably the most experienced in the world. And so she came on the team, great instructor. Then she started doing our um, sales and customer service uh, for the whole of original boot, uh, whole of uh, Fitness First Bootcamp. And then we started dating. So, you know, we, we spent every single morning together um, on the beach or in the park training, and then we spent every day together in the office. And so it was really a natural thing. And then my contract finished with Fitness First, and I decided to leave and, and go back to doing my own thing um, for lots of different reasons. And she decided to do the same thing. And we thought, okay, we'll just do it on our own and, and start to build it up again. And so the two of you recreated a different kind of boot camp that you then took out and and that became what it is now? What it is now. So back yeah. in the in the beginning, the actual company that I had, um, or my business name was called Grunt Athletic, and the product was original boot camp. So I had like, you know, one-on-one products or group training products and things. Then when we finished with Fitness First, we decided that we we're just going to focus on boot camp and go back to original boot camp. And it really was quite different with Emily's input. You know, there was a, a massive part of of her experience that came into the way the programming developed and and the product itself. Mm. So we went out and we, we did that on our own and then very quickly we had a lot of people in the industry coming to us saying, look, we'd like to get on board with this. You know, we, we've seen what you did for Fitness First. Um, we'd like to do it ourselves. And so we started taking on a few licensees and gradually more and more and we've never advertised it. We were never looking for licensees and then, you know, very quickly we, we woke up one morning and found we had 50 licensees around Australia and in Malaysia and and it was great, great network, mm. great group of people. Um, you know, I still teach every morning, so is Emily. Um, we don't need to, obviously, running the company now. Probably haven't needed to for about 10 years, but it's the one part of my work that I'll never give up is actually the coaching because that's who I am. I'm a coach. Um, as not so much a businessman or an entrepreneur or anything like that. I just like to coach and train trainers and train people. Why do you like it so much? I think I like to see what people can achieve and surprise them with what they can achieve physically, mentally, emotionally. I like to to push those boundaries that they don't push themselves. And so we're still very, you know, 25 years on, we're still very militaristic in the way that we train people. Um but I just also, I think I just get a kick out of seeing what they achieve. You know, mm. you see someone, we've got a guy right now, um, Steve-O, who could barely get off the ground when he came to us, couldn't, couldn't finish the one-mile run that we do as part of our assessment, and now he's running something like last year six or seven ultra marathons, um, and he's just killing it. Like he's just, and to see that makes, you know, every day fantastic. You... You've not been. We've talked a lot about the, the the athletic challenges and athletic achievements that that you've had, but you've your your life has not been without adversity. You got quite you got quite hurt at one point, didn't you? Yeah, about I always forget about how long ago it was, but I think it was about eighteen years ago. Now I was doing bodyguard work, and it was the opening of Fox Studios, and I was there with with one of my clients. I was and, there that night. 
there's yeah, a huge night. Mass- and, you know, all the all the security basically when everybody went into to the actual event, we all stayed outside and um, hanging around outside. And I spotted, you know, these three guys, you know, just big Maori blokes. And they were dressed the right way. They, you know, they were dressed in suits and things like that. But they were carrying backpacks. And I thought, oh, that was a bit weird. So I thought I'd go up and have a bit of a chat to them. And so I got towards and they sort of made a bit of a V-line away from me. And I thought, okay, this is weird. And I picked up my pacemaker and they took off. And funnily enough, Back in those days, I only weighed about, I don't know, 68 kilos. Every other guy I was working with, all the other bodyguards, were about, you know, 95 kilos. So the further we ran, the further behind all my backup got. And so we ran through all the buildings to the back of uh, the studios, and there's this massive wall that runs all the way around um, Fox Studios. And we got to this tree, and, they, you know, one had already gone up the tree. One was about to get to the tree, and one was a little bit ahead of me. So I grabbed the first one and sort of, you know, put him down on the ground. Um, grabbed the second one as he got to the tree and put him down on the ground. Went up the tree, and as I came over the top, the third guy was standing on a van that they'd actually pulled up against the wall, knowing that's where they were going to get out. And he had a two-by-four piece of wood and just smacked me in the face like swinging a baseball bat. And it broke my face, basically. So it broke both my cheekbones and my nose. But the problem was the wall, I don't know how, how high it is, five metres, I think it was, they were saying. Um, I fell straight back off the wall onto the road and it just fractured my C1 vertebrae on the spot. Um, That's the one right underneath the, the back of your skull. Yeah, so literally the, the very top one. And um, I was paralysed at the time, like completely paralysed, which was one of the scariest things I've ever been through. Um, about eight hours completely paralysed, then maybe another sort of six or seven hours paralysed just down one side of my body. Um, then I, I got the feeling back and all those things, and I had you know, just incredible pain. And what it was that they found out later was where the vertebrae had cracked, a nerve had got caught in the actual crack. And so, you know, initially they talked about maybe, you know, surgery and things until I worked out that, where it was was above the point that my heart was controlled. So not only was there a risk that I'd end up a quadriplegic if they screwed up, they would actually just turn off my heart and there was no way to turn it back on if they did that. This is in a surgery situation. Yeah, in a surger- surgical situation. So um, they had experts come in from Germany and all this sort of thing about how we could, you know, do something with it and they couldn't do anything. So um, I went through all the, you know, the usual things. So, so for the last eighteen or so years, um, I've had a headache twenty four hours, seven days a week. Um, and when people talk to you about headaches and that, they ask you on a scale of one to ten. Um, now it's hard to to judge it because I've had it so long. Back back in the day, it was like sort of an eight or a nine, so debilitating. Um, so I was on painkillers. Then I was on. Um, you know, tablets to try and get me to sleep and then I was on uppers to get me up and moving in the morning and I ended up having a breakdown in the first couple of months and just got rid of all the all the drugs that I was using because it just just couldn't, you know, sort of work what, that what way. What was that last couple of days like? What was that morning you I decided? Actually had, I actually had a friend who who kicked in my door and, and basically flushed everything, you know, down the, down the toilet for me. Because if you've got a prescription, you've got all like, You've got all the permission in the world. Here, buddy, have all the oxycodone and Percocet you want. I was basically on pethidine, like, you know, to deal with the pain. And because the problem was people like, oh, you know, why can't you sleep? You can just take whatever you want to sleep. But the thing is, like I say to people all the time, the best way to describe it is if someone's smacking you in the back of the head with a hammer, you're never going to fall asleep. 
no matter how tired you are, it's just not going to happen. No, no matter how drugged up you are, you're not going to fall asleep. And that's what it was like. So it was a good night, really good night. It was three hours sleep. Bad was three days no sleep. So I got off all, all the drugs, got, got away from all that sort of was stuff. Was there much withdrawal? Um, there was. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I hadn't been on for very long, but I'd say the first two weeks was a mess. It was really, really tough. And so I was, you know, this guy, this mate of mine, was a great help, and he really sort of stuck by me through it. What made him want to kick your door? Um, he just knew I wasn't the same person. Like, you know, he just said, like, you know, everything about me had changed. And, you know, he said it was more than just the injury. And so, yeah, he, you know, he just said, look, you know, we need to make this change. So it was good. I mean, it was the best thing he could possibly do for me. But it wasn't wasn't an easy thing to go through at the time. But So how do you – so you've, now you're faced with a life of chronic pain. What do you – how do you live? What do you do? Um it was horrendous. I mean, I was I was many times over suicidal. Um, the sheer thought of knowing that this pain would always be there, um, and never sleeping properly, and and it, it just you know it, it almost destroyed me. But and like I said, the thing that actually even killed me even more, talking about withdrawals, was um, the doctor said you'll never run again. Like you just never be able to run because when you run, all the muscles around your neck, so um, that run up from your occipital groove, all that uh, is going to tighten up and it's going to actually make the pain worse and your body is just going to shut down. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe. And then, um, you know, one day I just oh, screw it, I'm going to go for a run. And I think I got about two kilometres and I woke up about 15 minutes later with gravel rash all over my face. I just, I whited out. I used to white out from the pain, not blackout. And... Um, yeah, every now and then I'd keep trying and, you know, when I met Emily, you know, she was like, she was what got me through it in a big way, um, understanding the, what I was dealing with. But, you know, I'd go for a run and she'd be like, you were going to go for a run for like five, ten kilometres and like three hours later you've wandered back in with blood all over you. And so I sort of gave up on the idea. I thought, okay, it's not going to happen. I just can't do it because it was actually a physical block that my body was sh- shutting me down, not my, my brain. And so... I put on an enormous amount of weight, um, you know, really sort of hate, sort of hating on myself quite a lot. Well, you've been physical your whole life. You've been unimpeded by your ability to do whatever you wanted with your body at any point in your life and you've been really like, uh, you know, if I want this thing, here's some training that I can put between me and that goal, boom, goal, and now that 
ability is taken away from you and the ability you know that you've defined yourself as a 16 year old who lies about his age to go and beat adults at marathons you know that's who you are it's true and it's so true that like i look back over particularly my time at school and my time in the military and if you said some anyone like at that time you know when i was at school everyone called me jim um you know tell me about jim Ah, oh, great run, a best run we've ever seen. In the military, you know, and they just call me Bourbon because they couldn't say Brave One. Um, you know, like, tell me about him. Ah, oh, you know, fittest guy in, in the platoon, all this sort of stuff. And it's like that was, like you said, it really defined me. Mm. And so it was hard to understand who I was now. And all the way through my military career um, and even when I was doing security and all these things, I only weighed about 60, 64 to 67 kilos. Um, I ended up going up to about 98 kilos and part of it was I was doing you know, a bit of you know, strength training and stuff like that, but it was mostly just, you know, fat. Um, but what got me through it, funnily enough, was actually boot camp and those nights when Emma would be asleep and I'd be just awake the whole time and I'd be basically praying for morning because I just needed something to take my mind off it. So, you know, all the crap television, because in those days it was like not much, you know, stuff on TV. No internet. It's no, infomercials. That's right. that's right. And so I was just sitting up all night. I was trying to read books and all these sorts of things and waiting for morning. And then I'd get out there and I'd have my 50, 60, you know, recruits out there that I train. And they were always positive and energetic and all that stuff. And I never told them. So they never knew. And, I, you know, some of them, like a – We've been trained for 16 years. They said the first 10 years they did not know that this was an issue at all. And so they were what got me through it. And so that went on and on and I dealt with it for many years and just sort of did my thing. And then M had uh, decided she, she wanted to do an ultramarathon, which at the time was hysterical because she's incredibly fit but not a runner, like hated running. Like running 5K, she's basically like, okay, let's go and have lunch now. Um, I'm like, okay, you want to do an ultra? I said, well, I'm going to try and do some stuff. And I'd done a whole lot of research and I realised that I couldn't run for longer than a certain period of time without the pain being the issue. So I created a training methodology that allowed me to work at a much, much higher intensity to get greater cardiovascular adaption but through less period of time. So I started implementing that and she was doing her training and um, we turned up to our first ultra marathon at Centennial Park and uh, she ended up placing second. Um, I ended up placing third. And I thought, oh, it's all right, I can can do this. And so we suddenly found that that was something that we we're passionate about and, you know, we really enjoyed it and we obviously, you know, enjoyed doing well at it. So, you know, for the next, uh, God, I don't know how many years now, but five or six years, we, we travelled the world competing in ultramarathons all over the world and and shared that experience and, and absolutely loved it. And it's it's I've found now that I can manage the headaches through all of that and, and still enjoy the experience. And I think that might be part of the reason why I was saying earlier I get my blinkers on and I get into a different headspace when I race because I can push through the pain when I'm racing, whereas there's no way I could go for a training run for 30 kilometres. Mm. Like it would actually almost destroy me. But in a race situation, the adrenaline's up and, you know, so your mindset's different. I think it helps me to block the pain. How would you I've, – I've never experienced chronic pain. I've been in pain for weeks at a time, like when I blew my MCL and stuff like that. And they gave me Vicodin for that and that's a whole other story. <laughs> Did not end well. 
Um, yeah, but it doesn't usually mean well. No, it just, uh, he didn't even blink. Chief, he didn't even blink. He goes, oh, just give me some Vicodin. That was the beginning of the end for me. It's crazy when, when it comes to when it came to my drinking and using. That's for sure. How would you how would you explain chronic pain to someone who who doesn't? I mean, is it is it just a headache that won't go away, or is what's worse, the headache that won't go away, or the knowledge that this is what I've got forever? <sighs> it's hard to to weigh it up in the beginning because and that's the problem that drives the depression. The depression's not caused by the pain. It's just this idea that it will never stop and and the effect of that. So like I said, you know, it, it was going to affect the things that were important to me, like running that. I, I believed it was, you know, going to affect my relationships. And I'm sure it did, you know, with earlier relationships before I met him. Um, you know, it, it, it still just drags you down. I think it is that knowledge. And I always, you know, we went back to, to see the specialists, you know, every couple of years they you know say let's come in we'll see if things change now they've discovered that the bones actually calcified over the nerve so there's absolutely no chance they're going to be able to do anything because they'd have to actually break the bone to get the nerve out so it is what it is but it's a hard thing now to sort of try and describe because people say do you still have the headache yes is it still as bad yes but how do you deal with it it's like well you know, you wear a watch or a ring or you don't feel it until you think about it. And so something that's with you 24 hours a day for that long, it's like that. You don't know any different. So your mindset is, this is how I feel. When I have a bad headache, so when I do things that create, you know, uh, an elevation in the symptoms, then I'm like, this is really crap. Um, it never gets better. It just is what it is. So you just sort of, you know, you find that balance. But... I think, you know, the emotional side of it I struggled with for a long time till um, particularly recently uh, for a number of years now, Emily and I have been working with a, a group called the um, Wings for Life Foundation and they do a lot of work on spinal research and meeting some incredible people who have had far worse, you know, injuries than myself like, you know, quadriplegics, paraplegics, um, you know, even people who have died from from very similar injuries, only millimetres, barely millimetres difference in, in the breaks, um, that I realise that it's not that big a deal. Like I've got everything I, I, I need in life. I can still do what I want now. It took me a while. Like there are obviously 16 years. I couldn't run for 16 years. But now I can do everything I want to do. And I look at those people and think, well, they, they can't yet. Yet. I honestly believe that one day they will and I see massive improvements in what they're doing. And I just think, well, life's not that bad. <laughs> so when has this given you almost a superpower to then try and understand how to speak to people around motivating them around fitness? I think what it gave me is an insight into understanding that everybody has things that block them um, and it can block them emotionally, mentally, physically, obviously, as well. Um, and there's limitations that they often place on themselves as opposed to, you know, what it was they're actually capable of. And so, you know, working with elite athletes um, all the way down to people who'd never trained before, they've all got something that stops them from going one step further. And part of it's actually understanding that or identifying it first and then finding a way to address it and often trying to address it without them realising um, because as soon as you're aware of something, it becomes a, a bigger hurdle. And so 
if you can see something in someone's personality that is stopping them from, from achieving or committing or whatever it might be, then you want to try and look at ways to work around it, find motivational cues, um, find out why they've come to you in the first place. Because they've come to you. Like I, We don't go out and spruik to people. I don't ever walk up to someone in the street and go, by the way, you need boot camp because I'd probably get punched in the face, probably by a woman if I said it mostly. But um, it's, you know, we don't go looking for those people. They come looking for us. And if they've made that first step, they want something. And you need to understand what they want, but more importantly, why they want it. So a great example might be a guy in his 40s wants to get fit. Great. But why? Oh, I want to look better, feel better, you know, not be as tired. Why? And then you start to break it down to, okay, the guy's you know, in his 40s and his wife's pregnant. So he's thinking back to his childhood thinking, I remember when my old man used to kick the football around with me when I was 16. Am I going to be able to kick a football around with my son when I'm in my mid to late 50s? And so that's the reason. So if we're on South Coogee death stairs where, you know, they're, they're barely being able to drag themselves up the staircase and I see that, I can say, and God, your son would be so proud of what you're doing. You must think you're literally a superhero if he saw you out here right now. Boom, takes off, finds another gear, and that's it. They're the things that matter. Not come on, keep going, oh, you're doing well, all that's rubbish. It is more about understanding the individual. Some of them, like, it's just discipline. Get it done. Like, I, I didn't realise I said that all the time, but all of my one-on-one um, -on -one clients have said to me recently, you know, you say that a lot. It's always that last one or two reps when, I'm, like, they're really struggling to physically finish what I've asked them to do, and I just say, get it done. Not, I want you to do this, or come on, you can do it. Just get it done. There's just no way out. Like, there's no answer to it. There's no argument to it. It's like... There's no recourse. So, you know, you just got to find what it is that works with people. My, my way doesn't work with everybody you know, by any means. There's, you know, a whole lot of different ways you can approach training and coaching. And, you know, I've known some amazing coaches in my time that are very different to me. And I would happily, you know, refer people to those, those individuals if I found that my mindset didn't suit the client. But, you know, so far it's worked. So. so you've found the most successful thing when it comes to motivating your clients over the thousands and thousands of people that you've trained right now is identifying the why. Yeah, understand why they have made that first step to, to change. And so it's not what they're trying to achieve, which is what most trainers sort of get stuck on. So, you know, they do what we call a needs analysis when um, you get a new client, okay, what are you trying to achieve? And they, every trainer should be doing that to begin with because um, you need to understand what the person's goals are. Now, that's great. That's how you create the program, the physiological element of what you're trying to achieve. Then you've got to work out how you're going to get them there mentally and emotionally, and that's when you need to find what those cues are and the real motivation behind making that change because it's to do any sort of training or nutrition or, or both it's a change in your lifestyle. You're going to make sacrifices. You're going to trade things off. And it's not a small decision by any means. So you need to know why they're making that decision. And sometimes it's scary. You know, again, I, I tend to do a lot of work with guys 35 to, to 55. And a lot of it is, you know, they look back at their family history and they look at the health of their parents. And, you know, their parents, you know, father might have passed away, you know, in his 50s. It's not that far away. So they start to think about their mortality. And that's really important to understand too um, because if 
that is the case and you realize that it's so much more than they might talk to you about an aesthetic goal they want to lose body fat and be a bit more buff and but then you realize they're really actually concerned about their health and well-being so you need to make sure you're addressing that not only in the training but in how you're you're getting them motivated and getting them moving isn't it interesting how what, what you said before about just for people who don't know the south could death stairs they're in a place called south could which is a beach about uh, maybe two k's from where we are sitting right now in, in bronte um, they are Everestian in their incline. They almost go just like a ladder, basically. They're very uneven, so you can't really pace yourself very well. You've got to think about every single step uh, or you're going to get hurt. That's right. Um, but what's the altitude difference? It's got to be 100 metres. Oh, I think it is, actually. I think it is 100 metres. It's 218 steps. Um, but from the bottom to the top, it's got to be 100 metres of elevation. I think we yeah. worked it out once it was. and. It is an amazing staircase because all the football teams do it for pre-season, like, and they hate it. Um, and it's a, kind of a rite of passage, yeah. you know, if you live in the area to, to say you've at least done it a couple of times. Most people go there and they'll do it maybe four or five times. That's yeah. sort of the limit for a lot of people. But what, what you described earlier on that staircase is something that I've most definitely had when I've been doing distance running and most definitely when I've been doing distance cycling is that the, the blockage for continuance of this endurance situation. Uh, it's not like when, you know, I was working with you and we're working to complete muscular failure where like I, even if I wanted to with all of my heart, there is no more of, what is it, the CTP, whatever the chemical is in my body that makes my muscles <laughs> yep. work, ATP, is yep. completely depleted. There is no way that I can lift this weight mm. at this point. It's not like that. You're, you're talking about the thing that that gets you through the 30-kilometer mark in a marathon. You're talking about the thing that and, – and I've always been fascinated by that. The decision to stop running or the decision to keep running, it's just a thought. It is. It's just a thought. And in your head, if you can be powerful enough in your head to go, okay, I've got this thought that says I should stop running, but I can just override that. And the moment you do override that, you're like, oh, wow. There's this entire other tank of fuel that I had no idea I had access to. That's but right. I have put a limitation on myself because I have not believed that I've had that capacity. I have a saying that, I, that I've used it for 25 years, that when we're training, you can see people. You know, lactate's one of those things that you know, destroys people. Lactate's one of the most common reasons people will quit. It hurts. It hurts. But as I say to them at the time is, it is not pain. It is discomfort and distraction. Think about the worst pain you've ever been in. Does it come close? And 90% of people just go, not even close. You know, an injury, childbirth, whatever it might be. We've been through worse pain, mental or physical. So at the time, giving them a reference is like, oh, yeah, I can actually keep going. Like it's not like, I, like you said, it's not like my body is actually shutting down. I've seen people's bodies shut down on the staircase where their legs have gone to jelly, and that's awesome that they push themselves that hard and they just have to have a sit down for a minute and then we go again. But being able to go beyond that discomfort and find another level and then you now have a new reference point, and that's what we try to do. So we try to create opportunity for people to – some people never had a reference point of, of pain or discomfort. They've lived a, you know, a, a non-competitive life, whatever it might be. To give that to them is very, very important, very beneficial to them. It's quite a gift for people. And a lot of people say that to me over the years where we do things like we do a program called The Longest Day. It's a 25-hour program based on special forces selection. And it is, like, horrendous. Like, our whole job is to make you quit. And there are people who 
even now talk about, you know, 10 years on, that it was a turning point in their life where they now use that as their reference point. If I got through that, then I can get through anything. So, yeah, we all need to find that, that little spot in our mentality. I've, I've definitely, and I, I talk about this a lot when I talk about, um, and I'm grateful that I have had the opportunity to run a few marathons and a few half marathons and um, I can't run anymore, but having had that experience, having had that knowing, just the knowing of when I'm getting those signals that that's it, that's probably me around about probably 55 to 60% gassed. Hmm. I've got so much more left but that's just like an early signal of my brain trying to tell me and it's just a thought it's just a thought it is and you see you know you see people going through it in races so you know whenever our people are turning up to events if we're not running in them we'll go and watch them and you know support them and take photos whatever and you just watch the people in the middle of a race and it could be anything from a 10k for some people, 10K is a massive distance, oh, yeah. um, up to obviously when we do ultra marathons and things like that, and you can see that expression come over them where they're shutting down. But the best thing is I was doing one race where I was running from one point to another around this course, so I'd see them every sort of 5K over a marathon, the same people, and you could see them shutting down, and then you could see them getting their second wind, then you could see them actually embracing it, and then you could see them shutting down again. And it was this whole journey to watch them through the entire event, but see them go across the line. And when you look at that, and people say, oh, you know, it's not that big deal to run a marathon anymore. Everybody's running a marathon. Everyone can say that. It's not that. It's the actual getting through the process of it. It's not mm. the distance. It, literally anyone who's not injured or ill or pregnant could finish a marathon. That doesn't mean you're going to run the entire distance, but you could get to the finish line. That's not the point. The point is how you deal with the experience. And that's what why people are excited about holding that medal because it's a reference to what they've been through. Mm. And it's that skill set that you can then, like we said before, um, you can't access that decision process until you get to 30 kilometres in. But then when you're sitting there in your office cubicle the week later and, you know, you're overwhelmed with something, you've got this muscle in your brain that you can then access and go, actually, no, I know that there's more here. I know that I've got more. Uh, people who are listening might, you know, I, I'm, I'm always kind of fascinated with, you get to this point and you had it in your life. You said you were high 90s, nearly cracking the ton um, weight-wise. How can you, you can get caught? And I've done it myself. I got up to 112 kilos at one point oh, my God, I'm such a piece of shit. I'm going to have a piece of pizza. Oh, my God, I can't believe I just ate a piece of pizza. I'm such a piece of shit. You know what's going to make this feeling go away? Pizza. pizza. And then you just kind of go around this ever-decreasing, you know, diameter spiral that just gets you to a point where you're sweating so fast you stop moving completely and you just lie on the couch and eat shit. And it just gets worse. And it's like the momentum to get out of that spot is overwhelming overwhelming what would you say to people who might kind of feel that they've been there or or they might be heading there how do you move away from that point the, the honest truth is i would say everyone of us has been there one way or another so even from the guys like when i was young and i i was incredibly skinny the same principle of like why am i going to go to the gym i'm not getting any results anyway why would i even bother let's go for another run you know, so it's the reverse concept of it, but it was still the same mentality, really. It's the same the same question you're putting to yourself and you're giving yourself the same answer. Oh, it's not worth it or, you know, it's too hard. 
it's not as simple as sort of like there's one thing that works for everybody. You know, you need to understand, A, what got you in that position. Um, there's a lot of soul searching in, in making a decision to make a change, no matter what it is, and understanding how you got there in the first place is the most important thing for you to do before you even start. But, you know, I think what, what we've tried to do, and this is why we do what we do now, where we do obviously our boot camps and we created uh, – Back in the day, there was no such thing as the you know, eight-week transformation programs and, you know, Michelle wasn't doing her 12-week ones and things like that. Um, we started with our boot campers because my belief system has always been that the sooner you see a result, the stronger your fortitude will be to complete your goal, to get to your goal. And now there's been enormous research recently about that. Um, people are always like, oh, you know, you don't want to lose too much weight too quickly and it's bad for you. No, you don't want to lose too much weight. Losing body fat's fine. But if you start losing weight and you're losing muscle mass and bone density, it's terrible. But my theory was always that if you can show someone results in the first two weeks, like honest physical results that they can identify themselves, then they're going to push forwards. And we're all the same. You know, we all go on a, a health kick away we're doing. And if we don't see results, the first thing you're going to say to yourself is, yeah, I'm a piece of shit. It's not even worth it. I've just done like a whole, you know, three weeks. I'm just not seeing anything. I'm no worse. I'm not going to be any worse eating pizza that I just gave up. And that's the worst thing is their, their concept is, oh, well, it didn't work anyway. And I've already given up all those things I want to eat. May as well just eat those things. So for probably the last 10 years, particularly, you know, since Gladiators was the first thing that sort of spiked it, um, our goal is to try and find ways to get as rapid results as possible so that not just that you know people go oh wow you know you achieved that in eight weeks but more so is that first one to two weeks that the actual client is seeing the result that's who's important who no one cares a damn about everybody else seeing the result it's about them seeing it for themselves that it creates momentum you know as soon as they have mental and emotional momentum then you know half the battle's won yeah, the physical side is the easy part. You know, it's science. There is no magic pill. There's no amazing formula. You know, some training methodology works better than others. But ultimately, you know, it is just science. It's getting someone to commit to the science, to commit to the process. That is the hardest part. And what do the inside that two weeks, what's the physical result you're looking for? Is it you could barely do one push-up when you got here a week ago? Look what you just did three. So, yeah. So, we try to look at things from an athletic element and aesthetic element. So, that's how we train people. We train people like athletes so they can perform like athletes and look like athletes. Because, you know, my opinion's always been that we all have a natural athletic shape, which a lot of people just laugh at you. If someone's like 25, 30 kilos overweight, they're just going to say, I don't have an athletic shape anywhere. It's like, no. If we lived in a time where you had to get up every day and walk or jog or whatever 10 kilometres to work, like you know some of our parents or grandparents did, then work a hard day's labour in the fields or whatever it might be, then walk home, you would end up with a natural athletic physique. And I looked at it when we were in Thailand recently um, you know, visiting the villages that these guys were shredded and strong. And it's like you know, we're looking at them going, they look like hit the gym like you know, every day. They don't have a gym. They just work the fields, and they were in amazing shape. So underneath it all, we all have that athletic potential. So we need to just find a way to get there. So 
as you said, you know, finding something that you do a little bit better, like in you know, a performance element, so a push-up, you know, a little bit quicker on the treadmill, literally going up one one speed on the treadmill or, you know, an incline or whatever it might be, that's a very important process. Um, but to be honest, the biggest trigger for most people, unless their goal is purely athletic, um, is to see a change. And so the most obvious changes for people are how their clothes fit is the first thing, um, and their overall shape. So not no, so much definition that that comes, you know, two weeks, three weeks in, but just a change in your overall shape. And so they're the things we try to make sure we highlight to people. Um, you know, we're a We'd be advocates for people taking before photos and photos throughout, you know, their their training journey so they can compare because we see ourselves every day in the mirror. And so we don't notice those small changes. Our partners will often notice because, you know, depending on what your relationship's like, they don't see you strutting around the house naked every day. They see you maybe once a week with your shirt off, whatever it might be. Or people who see you two to three weeks at a time, they're the ones who really, really notice and so we try to make sure that people have those conversations, that they, you know, whether it's even someone else in the gym, like we have people who train with us, so, you know, who train around the same people every day in the gym, and those people make comment. You know, there's a couple of guys that I talked to this morning who you know very well, you know, um, they're in the gym every day, you're both in their 50s, they look amazing, and they notice everything because they might only see, you know, the client's, two or three times a week. I type once or twice a week, basing on times, but they see the difference. Yeah. And they also, they understand the importance of that change. Tell me about, because when, when we were working together, you did something very, uh, very interesting psychologically, which speaking of noticing a change around your body, you started taking photos, and the photos on your phone I found really, really helpful, what you're describing, um, the photos of the week to week to week, and then as after about third or fourth week, scrolling through them, they're taking the same angle, same spot, you know, like, oh, right. Look, that love handle is, I mean, they're exactly the same pair of shorts. All right, I don't feel different because the exchange is so incremental, but I mm. can definitely see it looking. But why you did something very, very fascinating is that you took photos without my face in the photo. Now, tell me why you did that. So basically what Emma would do, she actually would take a photo with your face in and then she'd just crop it down and show you. So we we talked to you about what your goals were and what sort of imagery you, know, you were trying to achieve from your physique and things like that. And... And would show you this, and because there's this, and I don't, I don't have that process with myself with body dysmorphia when it comes to weight. Mine is like skinny. I've always seen myself as skinny. I, I need to, you know, overcome that. But it's this idea that if you don't see your own facial expression on your own face with an image, you can disconnect. And so you look at it and you break it down. You become more analytical of what you're seeing. So you know, as soon as we start to see really obvious changes in you, which were like by week three, there were some really obvious physical changes, um, particularly shoulders, arms, things like that, that Emma would get a shot of you, crop out your face, and then show it to you. And automatically your mind is looking at, you know, and particularly with yourself, because you're, you're very analytical about all the things that you look at and you, you're sort of um, studying, that you're looking at, you know, the, the shape of the muscle, um, the, uh, the being able to see the actual um, definition through you know, different elements of the of the physique and things like that. And so once you've seen that, you can't break that as soon as you see that, oh, my God, that's me. Mm. So you've made that observation prior to making the connection in your mind, by the way, that's me. But if you see your face first, you automatically will 
created judgment based on its you. Um, I just had this with, you know, our, our book just came out um, and on the front cover there's a photo of this and I'm like, I hate that photo. Like my, for me it's just that's my worst possible scenario. But it's that idea that maybe if I saw that photo without seeing my own image in it, I wouldn't judge that physique so differently. So Em would do that every single session with you. And what was great was, and it's literally exactly what happens every time we train anybody, um, is as soon as you see that photo, you want that photo. Because you are now appreciating the fact that, hey, I, that is actually, we're all the same. If we, if any of us ever see a photo that we actually like of ourselves, it's automatically, I need that photo. Mm. Just for me, I just need it for myself. Now, and because it's one of those things where it's a way that you actually get yourself a pat on the back, which is very rare. Mm. Most of us don't ever do it. So, and we'll do it every single session, multiple times. And at the end of the session, she'd go, oh, by the way, just turn on your, your airdrop. I'm going to send you some photos. But when she sent you the photos, she sent you the ones with your face in. Mm. So now you had this connection of that is actually me. Yeah. And she does it with every client. And it's a fantastic way of dealing with people's perception of themselves. It was such a great psychological trick because early on in the first couple of weeks when we were working together, she'd, I'd see a photo with my face in it and she'd say, look at your arms and she'd zoom in and show my face and then she'd go back and inside my brain couldn't process that that was me because as you just mentioned, my face is in the photograph so what's my head doing on that person's body? Yeah. All right, so what I actually started doing, and Audrey would laugh at me very much, I started brushing my teeth in the mirror with my shirt off. Yep. Um, and she's like, you're just checking yourself out. I was like, no, I'm just getting used to the fact that this is what I'm looking like now because That's it's, not unusual. That's a very common thing. No, and it really felt, Jeff, it really felt like my head was just like floating in space and someone else was standing underneath it. it I couldn't accept, my brain couldn't accept that, no, this is what you look like now. Yep. And and so still, I still do it every night. I still, I, I brush my teeth in the mirror with my shirt off, just slowly like looking and going, okay, this is, this is what I look like now. This is, and the it's hard. Is, and the, I actually think it's a great, great thing to do. And I actually say to people, we joke about it with, you know, different clients. So, so we were training Jimmy last night and, you know, uh, uh, for those that I know, you know, James Stewart, you know, had done the cover with men's health previously and looked phenomenal, you know, in his forties as well. And, and Gee, he never, looked great the other night, the Logies. Oh, yeah. Far out, sharp as a tack. Yeah, it's just one of those things. He, he, he just looks phenomenal. And he's he always been a good-looking guy. He's got a presence. He's a big fellow. But he is in incredible shape. And he said, I've never had this body. He said, it's really actually hard to get my head around it too. So to help you maintain your momentum when you've achieved a goal, because the biggest thing is people achieve a goal and they fall backwards because they become complacent. I suggest to people... You need to spend more time seeing yourself because you'll see if there's a slight slip as well. Yeah. But also you need to start to appreciate that this is who you are now. You've worked hard for it. Mm. Like you need to take on that, you know, that, that idea that you've worked hard to achieve something and so you should, you know, bask in the glory of it. You should be able to look at it and say, okay, I've done this and, you know, I can maintain this. But I always laugh with Jimmy because he always says, oh, you know, any excuse I can take my shirt off on, <laughs> on home and away. I said, yeah, but isn't that your job? He goes, yeah, but I'm taking it off in the bar. I'm taking it off, you know, you know, in the in the workshop. He goes, all the scenes I'm not supposed to have my shirt off. I'm taking my shirt off. But that's great that you are appreciating what you've done for yourself. Yeah. Why Why a book? I mean, in, a, in an age of, you know, when 
there's so many workout plans coming out through Instagram or let me sell you this video series or get my ebook or here, you know, sign up to my website. Why are like a meat and potatoes, you know, paper and cardboard book that you hold in your hands? I think part of it is still that, you know, I appreciate, you know, a hard copy book. You know, I, when I travel, I tend to buy books, even though I've got like, you know, a Kindle and, you know, iPad and all those sorts of things. There's something to me about that physical element. Um, I also, again, look at what I feel our market is. Um, to me, there's a strong point for 35 to 55-year-old men. And, you know, I remember our, uh, our publisher was saying, oh, you know, women buy books, men don't buy books. I'm like, oh, I don't think that's really true. Yeah, men buy books, but we treat them differently. So if we buy a book that is educational or informative, what ends up happening is, Every margin has notes in. We've bloody highlighted everything. We've dog, you know, eared all the pages. And it, it becomes a Bible. It becomes a manual to us. So I appreciate that. And I look at my, the, my own cookbooks that I have at home or the manuals or the literally hundreds of, of books I have on, you know, training and strength conditioning, all those sorts of things. And I look at those books and they look like they've been through, like, you know, the shredder. But it's all the lessons I've learned from them that I then take note of in them. So I, you know, we've got an app and we've, you know, the app is literally the same concept as the book, but I just felt like it was, when they came to us, we, we weren't really looking to do it, but uh, our publisher who has done the program herself and her husband have, um, they came to us and said, we need to do this. And we're like, you know, kind of like the, the feel of it. Now it'll be available digitally and all that sort of stuff as well, but I'm really like the idea of the hard copy, mm. you know, actually sitting on someone's bench in their kitchen and they, you know, grab it when they want to go and do a healthy recipe or, you know, the fact that with a lot of the workouts and things, I can't imagine going to take the book with them to the gym every day. They'll take notes of what they're doing and things like that. And then there's also the opportunity for they can access, you know, um, apps and all that sort of stuff. But I just think it's more reading through and getting the vibe. And there's a lot in the book about, the motivational side and why you're doing it and and the lessons you learn along the way. Uh, I don't know. I, I was really interested to see how it would work. And so we've only we've seen it now. We've seen the, the copy of it and um, we're excited about it coming out and, yeah, I like it. When you are putting a book together, though, you're – I mean, we've all signed up to a gym and the financial – thing that you're signing up for with a credit card direct debit thing is far less scary than the waiver of liability, <laughs> all right, because you're signing a thing that basically says if my head gets caught between two weight plates, you know, you know, because you're essentially you're doing something physical that could be, you know. I have seen horrendous injuries in, in health clubs over, you know, 25 no years. No doubt, no doubt you have. When you're putting a, a book together of like here's an exercise plan for you to do independently, obviously there's some challenges there because, you know, this is you're handing it over to them to be self-motivated, to not injure themselves. Does that? How does that constrain you with the exercises you prescribe? It's very, very difficult. And it was interesting going through the process of writing the book. So Emily wrote all of the nutritional coaching element of the book um, and she had it literally written, you know, within weeks because it was all the things that she'd already, she'd, she'd already written all the recipes and she'd had like her whole system in place, you know, previously. Whereas my side of the book with the training element it is based on protocols and concepts and methodology, but that can be adjusted, you know, to suit the individual in whatever environment. And as you said, you know, most of our work is uh, face-to-face instructional. So 
I had to come up with a way to A, put the best program forward for the, the biggest group of, of individuals. So something that, you know, whether you're extremely fit or a beginner could do, physically do. Then my publisher said it has to be purely body weight. So no equipment at all, which you look at a lot of programs at the moment, like all the apps and stuff like that, you know, whether it's Kayla or Sam or whatever it might be, and they do these bodyweight workouts and they're great, but there are very obvious holes. So a great example is next time you go and look at a purely bodyweight training program, so purely, I mean, you can't even use a pull-up bar, according to my publisher, that, no, no equipment at all, how are they working their back? Or their biceps. And you'll look through that. I mean, I would say 95, if not more, percent of those programs, there is no back or biceps. Now, that means you are now adversely affecting your body by throwing it out of balance. So I'm very particular about things like that. So I had to sit down and I actually didn't write a word for the first three months. Emma had already written the entire section of the book of hers in the first two months. I still had not written one word because I was still creating the concept of what I needed to put on paper. And then I got my head around it, you know, the processes, the protocols, and then I had to invent, I think, four exercises, which have very interesting names. Um, that's always the worst part, naming programs. you got to name it after yourself, Braymont. Uh, the Braymont well, Bray well, Press. I named one after the Fonz, after the Fonz so the Fonz really push up. <laughs> so I was showing my age. But um, so, yeah, so it was it was tough. And it had to be safe. It had to be something where we weren't putting people at risk because my whole ethos behind training is risk versus reward. Why ever do something of any nature that is going to put you at risk if there's a way to do it in a safer realm you know, and still get the same sort of result? So it was tough, but I, I found the challenge really enjoyable because it made me go back to my roots, back to the science of what we do, um, made me you know, aware of the fact that, you know, how important it is to still go back to all those parts that you've learnt, you know, 20 years ago. But, um, you know, safety is a big thing. And I look at a lot of programs out there and there, there's a whole lot of risk of injury. And it's never going to be negated completely. You know, there's no way. You, you, you know, sit in a chair, you can hurt yourself by ending up in bad, bad posture. You know, being physical of any nature is going to be a risk of injury. But can we do it in a safer way or can we have it where it progresses in a way where you build strength, stability and your sort of ability to do an exercise correctly and then move to the next stage? Mm. So but in finding those, those exercises that did work, the, the back in a safe way mm. that you can do solo, did you find like, ta-da, did you, was there a moment for you? Um, yeah, so I cheated on the bicep exercises. Um, I cheated by including a towel. So, yeah, and I still had to come up with ways to work different parts of the bicep and all that sort of stuff, you know, to make it work to the, the level I wanted it to do. But, yeah, there were a couple of things from the back exercises that I came up with them in the middle of the night. I Again, I don't sleep well, so a lot of my creativity is at night. And then next morning I'd go to boot camp and try it like as on all my boot camps, like they were guinea pigs. And you could tell by what they were complaining about. Oh, geez, my back. Yeah. Boom, got it. You know, if they were complaining about another part of their musculature that wasn't quite what you're hoping for, then you might have to make an adjustment to positioning mm. or focus or whatever it was. But when I got out there and I tried it two days in a row with about, you know, sort of 80 people all up 
and they were all feeling it where I wanted them to feel it. And particularly the next day with the delayed onset, um, they were feeling that result. It's like perfect. Got it. Right. So trial and error. It's bloody good that you've got a, such a great group of people who, uh, you know. I try, I try everything on them. It's a, like they are literally you know, the world's greatest uh, you know, experiment you know, because they, they get out there and they'll do anything you tell them to do. And, you know, you've got to be careful with that and make sure, again, that everything is safe before you try to implement it. So we, we try it on ourselves and we try it on our instructors and we try it on our clients. But having people of such a varied ability um, and fitness levels and coordination and, and things like that, some people just, no matter how many times you explain something to them, they'll never be able to do it to push them in the right direction. Um, it's how you break it down to something that works. Do you think that... Because you're not the one on one, do you think that through the book you'll still be able to get access to that that feeling of I help someone make a positive change in their life? I think so. So the reason I say yes is when we launched our transformation programs, um, there was it was just for recruits. So whether recruits that were trained with myself and Emily or with instructors that we trained, so we knew the message was the same no matter what. And then we started getting all these you know incredible results to the point where. Um, a lot of the magazines started approaching us and saying, look, can we have, you know, feature them on our covers? So over the years now on men's fitness thing, we've had seven front covers, you know, Shape magazine, uh, Ultra Fit magazine, all sorts of things. And what was happening was people were either picking them up and having to live in areas that we don't have boot camp or the classic one was people were picking them up at the airport and then getting on a plane and going back to Paris or London or New York and then emailing us and saying, I want to do this. Or the, the thing I think was the best thing for all of us was guys and girls that were serving overseas in the military because they, you know, get the magazines to read. They may not be infantry, so they may not be in a combat role where they stay fit. Um, like, I'm getting shipped home in, like, you know, eight weeks. I don't want to be a fat bloater when I get home because I want my wife to want me as soon as I get walk in the door. So they decided they wanted to do it. So we had to create a version. So it was... Back in those days, it wasn't an app or anything that you'd followed along with. It was literally just a written version with some photos in there to give you an idea of how to get form correctly. And one thing I've gotten used to after writing for, God, 15 years for magazines is how to describe an exercise. Um, and that's what I was doing this morning. I was describing um, your exercises. So imagine having to, in word form, describe your Turkish get-up flow All right. the kettlebell. Or the the flow with the um, the landmine. Yeah. So describing that in words. So that's what we started, and then we we ended up getting incredible results. We had a guy in the states who's in the uh, coast guard who ended up being able to fit in a uniform that he had not been able to fit in for fifteen years, and in, inspired him so much he got a whole lot of other people doing it. And now we've been to to his base in um, San Francisco and trained a whole group of them, and now they're or becoming transformation coaches themselves. Um, so you can communicate in written word, I think, really well. It's harder and you have to be quite analytical about it in these sorts of ways. With food and that, it's more about, you know, the concept mm. and obviously a recipe and they might stuff it up and it's nothing too drastic. But with an exercise, there are so many tiny little elements that you you want them to try and get right. So it's not even just telling them. It's also telling them in a way where they don't overthink the smaller elements 
by giving them something in a bigger picture, like saying, I want you to bring your hand from here to here, your body will naturally do it in the most efficient way possible. You need to believe in that. You need to understand the body will do things in a specific way. So look at the big picture and describe that. And they sort of get there. But I've been, I probably was most blown away by the results we started getting from our, um, our satellite or our remote training clients. And now I do a lot of it now. I mean, I got a real kick out of that. I was really excited about this idea that, because I was excited, you know, I never really wanted to build a, a you know, for lack of a description, a, a, a tribe, you know, with original bootcamp that went beyond the people that we dealt with individually. Then it happened when we took on licensees. And so now everybody who does original bootcamp around the world are part of our tribe. And so that was a you know amazing thing to know you were affecting people on the other side of you know the world. But then when you know we spread into this idea of, of training people remotely and people you know maybe just picking up the magazine and so often it just starts with the magazine. They'll implement whatever was written in the magazine. Mm. But when you hear what they've achieved and when you again, you know, going back to when you hear how it's affected their life. So this this guy, you know, in the Coast Guard was going through a marriage breakup, he was suicidal, he had terrible, um, you know, self-doubt and all these things in his career. And, and now he's like, you know, he's gone into getting a promotion, he's gone to, you know, he's leading other people. Um, as I said, he's becoming a transformation coach under our guidance. It's a different person. And that is phenomenal. Like nothing makes your day better than hearing that, reading that, and then meeting those people one day. Now, we'd never met him for the first two years. Mm. And then we went to meet him face-to-face and it's like family. Yeah. yeah. Well, mate, I I hope this lands. Uh, when I when I met you, when we had our very first meeting about doing this, what was it, October? Yeah. I just about to go to Fiji for Bachelor in Paradise. I was ninety three kilos. I was on meds, um, and I was trying heaps of stuff, and I you know I didn't know what was going on. I hadn't yet made the plan, the decision to come off meds. I got off meds in December. And I was gritting my teeth uh, being off meds for those first couple of weeks. When we started working together in February, within, like, I I knew coming off meds, I needed to do something to get in the space of where the meds were, all right? The analogy I use is um, it's like setting this table we're sitting at for a dinner for 10, then soaring off one leg and expecting it to be fine. Mm. It won't be. You've got to put something in that spot, all right? Yes, there was an aesthetic result that UNM helped me get to, that I would never have got to without you both. But that's not the greatest thing I got out of it, all right? I now get to live my life not taking meds every day. Mm. I get to live my life having access to emotion. I get to live my... I cry at things, all right, because of the the, the mental fortitude that I get from resistance training, the mental fortitude I get from looking after what I eat, that has allowed me to now live so free of the thing that did get me very very healthy but uh, to the uh, i got i could not have come off them had i not become more healthy um but now i get to not live my life every day having to take those drugs and and i'm able to absorb the ups and downs of life so much so much better i fit into a smaller pair of jeans that's nice. Mm. My wife goes, "Hey, nice biceps." That's also nice. That's also nice. That's <laughs> all right, I'm not joking. Yeah. All right, no, that stuff's yeah, nice. No. But without a shadow of a doubt, you know, and not only did you, 
you know, it, it's like it's like Moana. You know, you didn't just you know put me on the sailboat and take me away. You like you then taught me how to build build my own boat mm. and showed me how to navigate and on your way. So, That's right. <laughs> and honestly, it's just given me like I've I've never felt this mentally fortified. I've never felt this amount of resilience emotionally in my entire life. I think it's and I think that again, it's it's why we do what we do and why I will never stop being a coach. Like literally, you know, you'll have to wheel me out in the chair to stop me from actually turning up and training every day um, with my people because it the physical side is basically the vehicle. You know, it's a way to tap into something much more important. And, you know, we've had, you know, clients who've gone through terrible times in their lives, um, you know, whether it be cancer, whether it be emotional problems or mental problems, whatever it might be. And, again, we all end up in a position where we want to make a change due to something else. We haven't just arrived there. There are forces that have taken us to our place, often things that we believe are beyond our control. Um, and are at the time because we haven't got the skill set. But ultimately what I love to see and, you know, and Guy brought this up in his conversation with you. Um, you know, I, I, you know, she wouldn't be ashamed for me to say it, but, you know, Jules cried when she heard that interview because there were things that he hadn't even expressed to her at the time because we all do it. We all bottle it up. We all try to deal with it on our own, we, which is the worst thing we can possibly do. But by empowering him, and showing him he has control over one part of his life shows you there are ways that you can take control of other really important parts of your life. And that's ultimately the biggest thing. You know, as you said, changing the aesthetic or even the athletic element of yourself is just a way to show you that you can control who you are and what's happening to you. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need help, you know, whether it might be medication or, um, you know, counselling or whatever it might be with your, whatever you're dealing with in your life. But the more you can prove to yourself that you're the one in control and it's not your situation and it's not God and it's not, you know, karma, it's not all that shit on the outside, it's you that really controls the situation, then you start to take back more elements of your life and go, I've got this already, I've got that under control, I'm going to reach out and take the next part and the next part. And it builds. We had a guy literally... You know, he went through the whole process with, with the challenge and, you know, he had great, you know, fat loss and, and went from not being able to do anything to being quite athletic. But the thing that changed him was he was at work and he was like the most beaten down person at his company and he was the one who never spoke to anyone. He'd go and sit in the toilets at lunch and eat his lunch in the toilet so he didn't have to talk to people. To, I think, three weeks after, he basically, a job was up for a senior management position he walked in and said, okay, I want this job. And his boss went, who are you? He goes, I've only worked here for six years. Like literally, I'm here. And he goes, oh, you're not that guy, you know, such and such. such. He goes, yep, you know, I'm going for this job. And the guy goes, oh, you know, I don't know if you've got the background. He goes, I've got this skill set, this, and he got the job. Wow. And everyone I know who works for that company is like, he's a different person. Like literally he just woke up one morning and, you know, he was just some other guy walked in in his suit. So they're ultimately the changes we want to see. You know, I had a... And it's one of those things you have to judge yourself on to some extent. I had a, a, a girl I dated when I was younger and, um, you know, went all through my army career and and she's a psychologist. And I caught up with her, you know, years later and she asked me what am I doing and all that sort of stuff and I told her. 
and she judged me. She actually starts saying, you know, about how it's very superficial and it's, you know, um, very shallow to be purely concerned about aesthetics. And I, and I tried to explain that it wasn't that, but she just had this perception. And now it's funny that she's um, contacted me again, you know, years and years later again and said, it's so great what you're doing. I'm like, where'd that come from? And she said, oh, no, I know someone who's done your challenge. And she explained the difference in this person. Right. And she woke up to it that. She goes, what's well, not? Like, she looks amazing, this girl, whatever. She goes, but she's a different person. She, she left her husband who was, like, treating her badly. She found great self-worth, you know, and that's what we want. You know, everything else is just a stepping stone to being happier with who you are. And if you're not happy with who you are, making a change. Because that's only the first change. Then you can make another one, make another one, and end up where you want to be. Mate, you guys changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> you're story. a different person. Long like you story are. short, man. Yeah, you are a different person. And that's what, you know, we see it ourselves. We see it with all of our clients. We see the change. And it makes it, you know, it's so important to us. And that's why you become family because, you know, we're very particular about who we train. You know, we, we don't pull any punches on the fact that I have no problem saying no to somebody. I don't care who they are. I don't care what money they want to, you know, pay us or whatever it might be. You know, it's about looking at the person's situation, um, having that first discussion about why, trying to find out the real reason why. You were very open about it in the beginning, which is great. It made it so much easier. Um, but going through it and then going through the hard times with it as well, we didn't always agree and, you know, um, you, know you, you didn't always trust the process in the beginning and you're dealing with a whole lot of shit that wasn't in front of us because you're only with us an hour a day. Um, and then we started to recognise good days, bad days, all the elements of what was going on that we started to really appreciate how hard you were working at the big picture, not just working out. That's the small thing. It's how much effort you were putting into being there like actually consciously being there when we were together and, and working and stuff like that. So that's why everyone that we've ever done this with, you know, they are family. They are our, our close-knit, you know, community because you all take a risk by opening up to us and trusting us because it's a big thing. And, you know, you've all done us proud. I have not had one single person I've ever thought, you know, you just quit, quit on us or whatever it was, you know, there's ups and downs and there's delays and there's, you know, back steps. But, you know, eventually everybody gets to where they want to be and then hopefully we find out that they've gone beyond that. So, yeah, it's great. Mate, it's going to be awesome. I wish you all the best with the book and I can't thank you enough. Thanks for coming around today, man. No, it's been good. Thanks. I'm really grateful that we got to have that chat. It's a goodie. That See, was I'm, really good. I'm like you. I'm a monster with a microphone. <laughs> no, I love it, man. Cool, man. All right, I'm going to just uh, take the photo and then we're done. Yeah. Sweet. Thank you. That was Chief Braybon. You can find him on Instagram at Chief Braybon, C-H-I-E-F-B-R-A-B-O-N. Or he's also on Instagram with Original Bootcamp, just all one word, or online at transformationcoach.com. Thank you so much to everyone that helped support me during this men's health cover adventure. Uh, most of all to my dear wife, Audrey, who uh, had to deal with me taking over the kitchen as a newbie and just teaching myself how to cook basically as a 44 year old man making something other than toast and stir fry 
Um, <laughs> she stood by me and, and really honestly helped me deal a lot with the body dysmorphia and that I'm really, really grateful for. I also want to thank uh, for the show today, Andy Ma, my audio producer, uh, Rachel Barrett, who helped us produce the show today, Toe Hider for the music. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with my other coach, uh, Emily. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.